Hello and welcome to another episode of Ranking Thrones. I am James Kelly. Joining me again for this special series is Jim McGeehan. Hi, Jim. Well, it's great to be back, and uh, now we are now number three, so let's get let's get into it. Yeah, this era, um, I have two alternate titles for what I would go- call it. I'd either call it the Reconstruction, or ultimately the better title for the overall perspective is the Silver Age of the of Westeros. Of the golden age that Jaharis ushered in is really past, and now it's just, what do we do now? And um, to quote my good friend Stephen Atwell, something about that really defines Aegon's monarchy that was really codified into basically law by Jaharis was the Targaryen monarchy was a dracocracy. It was firmly established on dragons and what do you do when there are no dragons around anymore what is left yeah the monarchy yeah the monarchy really it essentially goes through an existential crisis at this point It, it is truly an identity loss when the dragons are dead i mean and the dance really killed the dragons i mean there were a couple more here and there uh but Half of the, all the ones that were big were wild at this point. I think Silverwing was the only one who really was the really big dragon that was still left alive. Yeah, with the uh, exception of uh, dragon, she, yeah. yeah, Sheep Stealer. She oh, yeah. she went off somewhere. Nobody knows exactly what happened. Um, but Silverwing and, and went wild. The cannibal was yeah wherever. Just yeah, nobody. No, I mean, just still doing its thing, and then just died of age off screen essentially. And then yeah. you only had the, the small dragons left, and they just yeah. kept getting smaller and smaller. So now the, the monarchy is faced with this problem of we need to find a way to reinvent ourselves and to say what the monarchy is, because what it actually was is an impossibility. It's almost like uh, you know the, the star athlete past its prime now has to go and put reinvent themselves as a businessman or something <laughs> like that because otherwise all they have is just a bunch of faded nostalgia. Yeah, that that's dangerous stuff when a uh, when an act it's an actual monarchy on the line. So they yeah. go through this this age. They go through and they try to figure out and essentially make and test out new mission statements for the monarchy and. Uh, it works and doesn't work to varying degrees of success, and then ultimately it comes up with a this final idea, which is the monarch at the head of a coalition, at the head of a coalition of nobles with their vision in place. Essentially, kind of like a political party, but not really because it's a monarchy. Um, uh, but I they, will somewhat yeah. disagree with you, just because like at the end when we're going to leave it on is that. Is that the final monarch ends up coming up with a, a way for for that of letting himself be be the the target of of flattery and corruption and like and just who will bribe me the best who will spoil me the best and I will shower on you the austerity of the monarchy. Well, that he, is what what what. But we're getting ahead of ourselves for that. Because yeah. yeah, he, even he built coalition. He was the big pro-Dornish war, war coalition because he was a veteran of the first uh, – the Daron's the War of Dornish Conquest. So even he had his his whole licks bit of lords. Now, of course, he was – I mean, I don't even – flagrantly is still too moderate 
like too mild of a word for for corruption. He wasn't flagrantly corrupt. He was like ostentatiously corrupt. <laughs> like yeah, I don't well, even know if like I, there might not even be a word for it. Well, we'll quote Yandel in a little bit, or actually no, it's not Yandel. I think it's Kate himself for when we get to him, but. We'll save our discussion for Aegon the Unworthy in just a little bit. Yep. So um, let's talk talk about where, where it all begins with what, who what I would argue is one of the most misunderstood and misnomered kings of all time, Aegon the Third. He got the worst of the nicknames. He got known as Aegon the Unlucky and the broken king well he was unlucky the dragon bane he was unlucky he he both was and was was not unlucky in a way he is very much paralleled to the fifth king aegon in that when he was born no one absolutely no one would have expected him to be king I Even think, had Viserys' like intention of Rhaenyra succeeded in him, he was the f- fourth son. So, well, the first legitimate son, though. But yeah, well, that's beside the point. Uh, yeah, that's besides the point. If Rhaenyra was queen, that would have like been like shut up. Unless Damon did something sneaky, but uh, yeah. I mean that that goes into a hypothetical that we wouldn't even have time for. But uh, I would say that he was unlucky because he really did suffer a lot of childhood trauma. Yes. Yeah, so okay, getting into it, the first thing is that, and I adore Fire and Blood one, just like all of what Fire and Blood Volume One has done is really just to humanize and like resist the kind of cartoon characters that you can sometimes get get when you get these historical kind of figures and this kind of history approach, the simplified Shakespearean version, if you will, is that, like, they say it's just, like, with with Aegon and with um, the the uh, short-lived... No, not Denara. What's her name again? Oh, Denara. No, no, Jahara. No, Jahara. Jahara, and then he marries Denora. Yeah, and then he marries Denora. Yeah, so... So... And Aegon's daughter, uh, Rhaenyra. Re- Reno- okay, I'm, I'm still. Okay, just Aegon's daughter. She's not around for long. Jahara. Yeah, Jahara. Yeah, Jahara. Jahara. Jahara is like both Aegon Jahara. Like the the maester just like flat out say in the history is like, well, what do you expect? It's like there's no way that like after all that they had endured, of like Aegon, like watched his three big brothers that he obviously looked up to and loved died and like his mother and he watched his mother get eaten by a dragon in front of him his uncle obviously wanted him dead his um like he thought that he left his his younger brother behind to die yeah and that's like one other huge thing is like his the 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 brother that he was closest to he he thought he abandoned to his death and even though it, it works out and he gets, uh, you know, the whole in the Lysine spring and all that, that still like way has to weigh on him in, in yeah. his psyche. Because because like even though like he gets like, well, I didn't die, but it's still like, but I abandoned you. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, you can you can definitely see how, you know, at the end of the end of the Dance of the Dragons, you basically have they say, all right, we're going to marry Aegon the Third. 
to Jahara. In theory, that's going to unite the black and the green houses, the, the black and the green factions into a single thing. And mm-hmm. we're going to move forward from here as best we can. And it doesn't work out, but I mean, you, you basically you're holding up and you're saying, hey, c- congratulations, uh, traumatized preteens. You are the new hope of the kingdom. Yeah. Which, which is a terrible, terrible mission statement. But I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, you can also see that with the the original Regency Council, this idea, this seven Regents Council you, has three blacks and three greens. So it has you know, yeah. the, sea, the sea snake and then it has well, guys after like... Cor- after, um, we're not going to talk about it too much, but after Cregan has cleared the court of Aegon's court, pretty much. Yeah. All of Aegon's court, except for Corliss, who doesn't last that long, is gone. Yeah. But Allison think- is like quietly put away into a tower and told yeah. to shut up. And like... And she pretty much is the toxic influence that you'd think, because when she gets to like this one alone time with Jahara, she immediately says like, "Hey, when Aegon's sleeping, kill him." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you, you've learned nothing from from this. You know, these, yeah. two, these two years of devastation. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it's interesting because then you see, you know, they're they're really trying to avoid the conflict resparking. So. They have three blacks, they have three greens, and then they have Munkin as this theoretical neutral because he's a grandmaster. Yeah. And and then you have, you know, what's Mary the black and the green claim together. They're really trying. And, you know, that's a good thing. Even though the Regency is a one roller coaster after another of crazy crap, uh, you know, they tried to do that. So that's a good thing because if if the the grand no if the nobles and stuff like that just decided to to fall back into the seven king the actual seven kingdoms the feuding kingdoms there might not have been a whole lot that the royal family could have been able to do to stop them yes absolutely especially because aegon has yeah. pretty much no real power it's more just a it's slowly as the regency goes on and that's interesting and where i do kind of chide and think this whole this whole title of the broken king is it is true, but not true at the same time, and I, I want to cover a little bit why. Is that is that when he really is tested, when it's not officially peak, but come on, we all know it's peak, is going through this coup d'etat to try to and take yeah. o- take back his power. That that Aegon really shows like, no, I am the king. I will not like just be this like puppet to you. Like I may be a kid, but no, I'm not stupid. Yeah, no, it, 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 he shows a lot of maturity, and I think the reason why the broken gets a, applied to him is because, honestly, it's it's the wages of feudalism. Since feudalism, the personal, is political, Aegon's reluctance to engage with people on a true personal level – I mean, they say that he would go entire days without meeting anyone or speaking, and in feudalism, you really can't do that. And so, I, I think so, that's why they he gets kind of this negative appellation is because it's mm-hmm. something more unique to to feudalism and this this idea of personal being political rather than if it was a more institutional version of government. So I want to talk about that and, uh, and taking a bit both the macro level that we're taking to the series is that once Aegon is that I think this is also with the Regency Council for its rigmarole is actually very formative for Aegon's kingship and like his re- his relationship with the lords is that when he is speaking his mind and saying like even he even encounters it with Cregan 
Although Cregan like tries to minimize it and tries to at least like unlike other people who talk down to Aegon, Cregan's the only one who doesn't pretty much other than Corlys. Of like saying like, okay, let me explain why I'm doing this so you understand me. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's uh, gonna, like, there's going to be like, a little bit, but just does nothing but just talking down. Of like, yeah. you're a kid. Yeah. Go he, away. Yeah, and there's I mean, and, a little and, bit and, you can expect. Yeah, because he's you know what six or seven at this point. But you know, I I understand exactly but, what you're yeah. saying. The, the social dynamic is still in play. Yeah, and so, and so no, he, he's about ten when, when this is happening. Was well, still a preteen. But yeah, he's still yeah, and so he basically. This forms in his mind that just that the lords are, are really he cannot trust the lords. Is that the ones that, and that the lords will consistently try to basically brush him off, and not respect his will. And so when he finally forms his power base, and it's also a bit of a, a reaction to his uncle, and basically a bit into the idea of the broken is that he just knows that like all you want is, uh, of like this whole progress, this idea, this pageantry is what it really is. It boils down to is it's a dancing bear is all you really want is like, you don't want me as the King. You want me as in the spectacle of the King. And I have no patience for that. And I have no interest in that. I'm just going to rule. I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to be doing, which is give you bread and like this, the wonderful speech he gives of just of saying like, if you want dancing bears, like the lords and and I'll send out mushroom and a dancing bear to give you to give you like the the circuses. But I am have no patience at all and no interest in circuses. I'm just gonna give you bread. I'm gonna and to his credit, and this is why I really think the Broken King is a real misnomer. Is Aegon delivers in it on it. Is that after what had just gone through with the Dance of the Dragons, Aegon oversaw over 20 years of peacetime. Mm -hmm. Like there's basically three little tiny rebellions that we don't know yet because we don't have Fire and Blood Volume 2 with the Darren, Prince Darren imposters. Yeah, and and you can expect you, you can expect some of that to happen just just in general. It'll always yeah. you know you can't stop every single thing from happening. Jaharis was not a fully peaceful reign, but yes. Yeah. And but uh, it's it's interesting. I love this uh, the uh, full bellies and dancing bears speech because it's actually a twist on an old saying. So the the, the old saying is bread and circuses. It was said by Juvenal yeah. mm -hmm. uh, in in his satires, but it was actually a castigation about how people stop. You know, the Romans stopped paying attention to their civic duty when they're distracted by bread and circuses, essentially. And it's how Caesar Augustus came to power was he gave bread and circuses and made them forget that they had lost the liberties of a republic. Yeah. And and here a Aegon is, is turning that on his head, and he said, you know what? I need to make sure that the people are satisfied. And really what people need are full bellies and dancing bears. They need to make sure they're not worried about where they're going to get food and water. And they need to, you know, something to entertain them, something to help keep them occupied and, and feeling. I mean, essentially, it's a morale element to a citizenry. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, it's it's just it's so interesting to actually see bread and circuses spawn as a positive in, in that way. It's just I mean, it's. I mean, George loves to to take history and kind of turn it on its head a little bit. And then, of course, well, like I said, turn it up to 11 and give every other person a white wig. 
but well one thing um if you're wondering um the speech by by Aegon the bread the dancing bears and bread speech um it does come from Thomas B Costain's uh fourth volume in his Plantagenet series and it's spoken by Richard II when he dissolved his regency council Oh really I didn't know yeah. that Yeah it's um it's very heavily like similar so check it out Okay it's, yeah. um, it's a it's a very interesting it was like whoa when I read that I was like oh okay I see where you got that George <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, that does make more sense because a lot of a lot of Fire and Blood Volume One is is based off of the Accursed Kings. So yeah. So I, I can see where you know he, he he likes to borrow that stuff. But I mean it's the same thing. Absolutely. Like I love how I love how Stannis is stealing some stuff from Macbeth uh, in his uh, uh, Dance with Dragons Deepwood Monarch too. It's 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 always fun to see little little grabbings and 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 sprinklings in in the story. Ned Stark, the noble Ricardian version of Richard III. Yeah. Um, so, but so, so yeah, so we see this uh, this idea of Aegon saying, let's go and build a kingdom that can actually heal. And he does. Yeah. And it's so amazing that he does this. But the problem is, is that still... I mean, it does definitely help that he's got his brother who is... Oh, like, yeah. It's, it's this perfect combo of uh, of that... Aegon is this really just down to earth of like, I don't care about the pageantry at all. All I want to do is just the work. And his yeah. brother is is like right there with him. Sounds good to me. Let's just yeah. do that. And he can actually get the work done. I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this with Viserys, but Viserys is this constant presence pretty much up until his death of being essentially the administrative element of the kingdom, even if. He's not actually the king himself. He's only the king for a very, very scant period of time. But he's the yeah. hand for his brothers, both of his nephews. And it's it's just interesting because he's a guy that keeps the kingdom in the black despite some crazy stuff going on. That's why we voted him a dragon in the first season. And, um, and okay, I'll say it right now. Viserys is, like what we said, with, what I argued with Visenya, basically Viserys defines this era. Viserys defines this era of of the silver age because he's just this constant background presence that's always guiding each of the rulers and making and he always makes the best of the situation obviously when he has a good competent and intelligent king like Aegon the third it's the best case scenario where it's like there's peace there's prosperity yes the people are kind of in this a little bit the morale hasn't been boosted by the Dance of the Dragons, but my brother is giving you everything else you should ever want, so shut up. Nice. And then, like, when he has to deal, as we're going to about to get into with his with his nephews, then it's just him managing the crisis and make them not as catastrophic as they definitely could have been without him. See, I, I disagree that he he's not the, the figure that looms, looms large, but if only because I think it's these competing visions of monarchy that are the real the real thing that defines this era— and I would say that Viserys is essentially all of the background work that makes it even possible to have this. So if you if you think of True you enough. Know, a, a, like a, a a robot, you know, an automaton that does a little song and dance at a Chuck E. Cheese or Disney World or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, the the visions are the actual shell of it, and all of the clockwork and you know the the computers and things like that inside it. That's Viserys. He's what makes it all possible, but he's not the star of the show, and it's kind of interesting to see that. And I love how you can see how Aegon's vision is summed up actually in his crown. Yeah. So, so you see 
Aegon the Third has this basically it's an unadorned gold band. Whereas all of these other crowns are ostentatious, like Aenys is ostentatious. Uh, Aegon the First just shows the Valyrian pedigree and the warrior element of him. Yep. Uh, Jaharis's crown is all about the unity with the faith and and the deals that he's made, but it is a very splendid crown. Yep. Aegon's is basically functional. Is a functional crown of yes, it's going to be a gold band that I'm going to wear on my head, and uh, that's exactly. Yep. Because I can, I mean, for Viserys, you can, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Viserys, but with Aegon, it really seems like he says, this is a luxury that a kingdom that has just suffered its worst civil war does not need right now. Yeah. I will I will wear a crown because I am the king and I understand that the king has to have a crown because it's a symbol of the king, but we're not going to go flashy. We're not going to go crazy. And I mean, of course, the Jaharis' uh, crown is gone because it was sold. Yeah. And Aegon's crown was going to give completely the wrong message for yeah. a, kingdom, a kingdom that has really gorged itself on the grief of war. Uh, to use the uh, what is it? What was her the the seer at the at the Isle? Her her thing mm. gorged on grief. Yeah. Great. Great turn of phrase. Also with with Aegon, Aegon, I, I I will say okay, kind of me a bit dispelling and also going against the his reputation. One for a bro, for a so-called broken king that didn't like to be touched, he had more kids than 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 Viserys. He he had five kids, so I don't know. He must he must have either had a really really got lucky those five times or. I think he, this is just like, I understand it's just basically he just had no patience for going a bit off of what you say is that it's also a bit of a reaction to his uncle because his uncle really, the few times that he really could establish himself as king, it's all about pageantry and all about asserting how he is the rightful heir to the Targaryen dynasty. But he's just like, no, I have no patience for that at all. I have no interest in like progress. If you want to talk to me, talk to me otherwise like no don't go through, through this like sh- like heraldic pageantry it's just like it's just a waste of time it's just a dancing bear to me it's just mushroom japing i don't care i have no interest in that but to push back a little bit on that especially in an in a uh, kingdom where most of the population yes. is illiterate. You understand, like the, the yeah. flaw of that. Her, her, yeah the, the, but it's also possible and just as a counter theory and i'm because i'm always a guy that likes simple solutions you know, he could have just been a very private person that actually had an established rapport with Denora, and but they they exhibited the the positive aspects of that relationship kind of privately. They didn't like other people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and I mean, that, I mean, yeah. for a guy that had so much trauma, I could understand maybe being very reluctant to trust others. And if he did indeed, you know, trust to Denora and really loved her and things like that, I mean, we don't know because we're not in his head. Um, it just it was exhibited in that in that fashion. We do get the fairy tale meeting of them, so it does suggest hopefully. Oh yeah. Well, and that and the the uh, what is it the the cattle fair. The, yeah, the cattle fair is, and like the the good thing of like the sisters know, hey, we know what our brother actually wants. Here's what our brother wants, and he's like, yep, I want that girl. Yeah, yeah no, ba- Bela and Reyna were were definitely great. I mean, because they were the ones that even they they were the ones who threw themselves on their knees in front of Krieg and Stark to beg for the sea snake's life so i mean they are they are 
they definitely have got brains in their heads. They they know they know how to how to play the game. I am very curious when we get Fire and Blood Volume Two how much Martin will get into the scandalous nature of Bela and and Alan Oakenfist, just because we do know that Alan eventually started sleeping with Aegon's daughter. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, that's just I mean he's got to save something though. I mean, he, yeah, he's got, he can't just. Uh, just leave that out, uh, leave that out. But uh, yeah. so, yeah. So as we said, you know, Aegon has this idea, you know, his, his vision of the monarchy is full bellies and dancing bears. It's his mission statement. Let's make sure everyone's taken care of. And then the, the world, you know, the, the kingdom won't erupt into chaos because that's the last thing we need right now. But then and, after Aegon. Yeah. He, so, he dies of tuberculosis, I think it is. Sickness, but yeah. I think because they said they called it consumption, and that's that's tuberculosis. Yes. yes. Yeah. Real. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah. Then we get Daron. So first. So I'll, I'm going to say this right now for for in comparison for the rest of this Silver Age era that we're going through. Aegon like is also one of those kings that only looks great because everyone after shows like how much he was in the right and how much like he did have the right idea because everyone else tries to solve this problem of what do we do without dragons mm-hmm. and every one of them spectacularly fails Viserys does not fails Viserys does like, not but he just he gets murdered he gets murdered before he gets a real chance to do it <laughs> okay so you say murdered all right um oh yeah well no we'll get into that but yeah so well, I mean, Viserys, I, I would argue, is kind of a, a continuation of his brother. Uh, it, it's a bit more forward-thinking than his brother, but it's basically his brother of just, like, just bread and circuses, just peace. Peace and making everyone in that realm happy and no kind of overly ambitious and crazy things. But And every king, just like every presidency, is a bit of a reaction to the previous one is that Darren kind of looks at his father, and I think what he interprets is, like, that the popular... Which maybe... Darren is such a mystery. Like, he is a kind of an enigma. At once at, at once you can understand so much about him, but at the same time be so curious about him. Because we just have so... Only have so much about, it, about him. Is that he, he basically either knows what his father is perceived as, as or believes what what people thought of his father and just wants to be this really charismatic, outgoing, bold figure that really emboldens the nation mm-hmm. with this war. Of that so, nothing unites and excites a people like a war. My read on Daron for that is he sees that of what Aegon's vision was and he says, well, that's good for a kingdom that is recovering. Or he mean he may not even have said that, but he says, but eventually the kingdom needs to define itself as a symbol of strength. And the real way to do that is to unite the people in a way by completing Aegon's vision of conquering Dorne. This would actually have a unifying statement the king is the a general i mean and certainly because feudalism is a martial aristocracy there's already a lot of overlap there but he says that because you know this 
this uncompleted idea of Aegon, if we complete it, we will say that even though the dragons are gone, the Targaryen monarchy itself is still this same symbol of strength that Aegon is. And you see Daeron uh, grabbing and essentially taking on the mantle of the, the hero cult of Aegon I with the the crown that he puts on his head and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, we uh, you do not need a dragon because one stands before you. That's a great line. It's both so full of arrogance and pride, but at the same time, it's all, it is inspiring in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 and you got to remember this is a 16, no, this is a 14 year old who's saying this. Yeah. He's 14. And I can see why Viserys ended up uh, saying, okay, he doesn't need a regency because he remembers what happened the last regency. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So he's just kind of, but, um, I could see well, that's this. That's what they, they flat out say is like that he, he made him king because he wanted to avoid the regency problem. Yeah. And the vision of of a, of Daron, I mean, it's 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 really something I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the people who were maybe skeptical of the idea when it was first proposed. But after seeing Daron make the speech and outline everything, I wouldn't be surprised if they got won over, just kind of lost in the moment of just, he seemed so charismatic and popular as well as intelligent. I mean, we have to remember a lot, the the, the portrayal is Daron is just this mindless martinet who bloodies his entire kingdom, but he's yeah. not. He, he fought this war well. Yes. And, uh, and th- that's yeah. one of the reasons why I wanted to know more about him he's a very interesting figure and that's why i say it, it, he's kind of to me at least an enigma because he's he's definitely embodying he's clearly inspired by men like henry v alexander the great a little bit julius caesar of just the, these kind of men who are just bold and charismatic and just like dripping with charisma that you you do follow these these men on these vainglorious dreams because there is that pride in him. You can definitely sense that pride of saying, like, well, I can complete Aegon's conquest. And, and like, but Aegon couldn't do it with dragons. Well, I am a dragon. Like, I can do it. I can do it. I, at 14, can do what, what, what Aegon the Conqueror could not do with three dragons. Yeah. And then the you chutzpah have... on that, that is, like, just so, like, wow. Yeah, and it's it's a it's an okay. interesting contrast too with Ares the Second, who envisions himself as a dragon when he's torturing people to death and burning them, yeah. as opposed to this this idea of I am a dragon, and you see it more more of a uh, a symbol of inspiration and uh, you just again this I mean I, I could just imagine the, these people being won over, and so when he goes for I his mean war, also I I will. Oh. It is also because of the fact, and again, reaction to to the father of just like after decades of basically just like Aegon yeah. like not really being a private person and like only talking basically to Viserys and a couple other people and his wife and just like delegating saying eh, you do that you do that having this king who is like really interfacing with his lords and like help me plan my war council and let's do this is like really exciting to them. Yeah. And when, when, when we get into when we get into Baylor, I'll talk more about the daddy issues of the two of the two sons of Aegon the Conqueror or of Aegon the Dragonbane. I'll I'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. But um, when we get into Baylor, oh yeah, no, I have a I have a whole fun little explanation for it. Well, uh, I do. 
Like, I think looking at it right now, just as I'm talking to you, I can see, like, two just very interesting reactions to their father. Yeah. But uh, I could see where Daron is also thinking, you know, we can't just have a vision of the monarchy treading water. We, we yeah. can't because we're going eventually a wave will come. We need to show that we can not only handle the problems that are that can arise up naturally over the course, but actually take on and accomplish big visions, big projects. Well, it also is him trying to assure the realm of that Aegon the Third's reign, which does earn him the, the nickname the Dragon Bane, is yes, he hated dragons, but he recognized their worth and tried to hatch them. He definitely tried. He did but, not yeah. like but, but they just are like, extinct it becomes now. like it yeah. becomes firmly clear like oh they're gone they're never coming yeah. back they're, they're extinct gone. and we need to we need to say that you know we need to fa- form a vision that we are something uh we are still a, a matter of strength the dragons were a tool they were not the actual seat of power of the monarchy so when we see this war we actually see daron fights it in an incredibly different way than aegon did aegon yeah as a as a general, he kind of falls short because really his strategy was I'm going to keep pressing the dragon button and yeah. I'm just going to wait until I win. Uh, but well, he also not, uh, adopted shock and awe. Oh yeah, he def- definitely adopted shock and awe. But you you still especially I mean Stannis brings this up about how he sent uh, Alan Valerian to break up the Planky Town and control the Green Blood. Dorne is a desert. Control yeah. of the water is important, and control Absolutely. of the waterways means you have unmatched mobility in any in any pre-modern, you know, pre-aircraft time. Really, you need the water if you're going to move rapidly. Horses can take you far, but ultimately, boats are going to be much faster than anything anything on four legs. Uh, so you need to be four so this good. Two legs better. So the fact is, is you can really see that Daron here is absolutely making sure that he is at the places he needs to be. He is fighting the war in a way that the Dornish actually fight their wars. They love using their mobility. They love being able to essentially wait people out by using thirst against them. But now Daron is controlling the water resources. So you can actually see Daron has learned from the various conflicts with Dorne where... Oh, yeah, he the, studied them vociferously so yeah. that when he did this, he, he wasn't just coming in, like, guns blazing uh, as kind of what what, what is his cousin will will end up trying to do in his disastrous attempt. Yeah. It's like, he actually, like, studies it, learns it, and just says, like, okay, what did they do wrong? Yeah. And, and that's, even without dragons, how can I do this and pull this off? Yeah, one of the great lessons of warfare is that you never disrespect your adversary's ability to do you harm. Mm-hmm. And if you if you just think Jamie. that you're just gonna gonna walk over them, then you're you're inviting yourself up for a most spectacular fall. But Hear we that, see, <laughs> so we see Daron. He was able to successfully control and get the aristocracy, the the Dornish aristocracy, the nobility to surrender. Yeah. And to his credit, and this is like part of the interesting thing that really um, the that the world of ice and fire presents is that one is that Darren 
follows in Aegon's footsteps of giving the same terms to the to the princes and nobles of Dorne that he gave to the people he conquered in during the conquest of just saying, okay, you no longer get your regnal titles, but uh, you now pay taxes to me, but you can still p- maintain most of your positions. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it. Bye-bye. And he, he does a really good job. And then not only that, and this is the part, the, the nice little tidbit of history I love, is that he writes the stories of his conquests yes. in, in the common tongue. And this is right out of Roman history. Well, yes, uh, that, Caesar wrote uh, Commentary di Beo, uh, di Beo Gallico, the, the commentary on the Gaulish Wars. And yes, he wrote it sp- yeah, specifically in the common tongue, the common Latin, as opposed to the high Latin. Yes, uh, that's what and, Julius Caesar did, and that's why it's still like for people that study Latin, it's often one of the first things that you read because it's imminently readable compared to the very difficult Cicero and oh yeah writers. Well, I mean Cicero, Cicero I don't, I don't, was an orator, Latin, so I can't speak personally. Yeah, but, I mean Cicero is an orator. His his stuff was all about being uh, being difficult. Um, I, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of shitting on Cicero a little bit. No, oh, sorry, I, I'm not supposed to say blank. Either, but uh, I, I'm I swear it's fine. But okay, yeah. uh, but yeah, no, I mean, and I know Cicero is actually actually a very fascinating guy. Uh, not yes. saying, but uh, this this idea is because he's making it so that it's it's going to be uh, promulgated widely. There are going to be singers that are going to grab snippets from his book and sing songs about the glorious conquest of Daron the first. And that's going to be this, that's the second part of Daron's vision. It's not yeah. just the military conquest, but then it's about making sure that everybody knows and celebrates it. Yeah. It's a brilliant propaganda move. And it's, and it's why both of Aegon's sons eclipse him and arguably all of Aegon's kids eclipse him. Oh yeah, and fame if nothing else. Yeah, um, except I mean, for maybe maybe Reyna, maybe Reyna doesn't, but that's because she became a Septa. Yeah, so she, Re- but, yeah, but Re- yeah, Reyna doesn't, but Elena, even Elena does. Yeah. Yep. Well, but that's also began again because, as we said, like private person, just kind of quiet yeah. to himself. Is means it's kind of hard if you if you if you are that that, it's kind of one of the reasons why, this is a completely unrelated and. Only five people will understand this metaphor. It's kind of one of the reasons why Jack Jack Kirby wasn't well known to most of the outside world compared to Stan Lee, because Stan Lee was this charismatic, outgoing guy, and Jack Kirby was not. I'll take your word for it. Um, I know that there is a Jack Kirby, and he was involved <laughs> in comics, and that's about as far yes. as I know. Okay, yeah. That, that's all I'll say. I'm not going to comment on that yeah. um, controversy debate commentary that that's a whole other podcast whole other debate well when this when this episode is released you can bet that a bunch of people are going to dog you on twitter let's just say that that's probably going to happen at some point yes 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 but uh so we we see that and here then we have so daron completes his conquest and then leaves and then the uprising begins this the dornish uprising and now we've seen uprisings before in dorn after aegon's conquests we know that there's actually, first off, there's a strong sense of uh, pan-Dornish identity, which was built in large part due to the moves of Aegon I. We went into that a little bit in the first uh, 
yeah. in the first thing. I mean, certainly there's already there's cultural cleavage. Uh, the Roynish influences on oh. the Dornish are already going to be a means of separation between them and the more Andalized first men. Uh, the Andal first men influences. I'm sorry, that's what I meant to say. Um, but we also see that they these small folk are really the ones who are carrying this revolt yeah. because Daron comes back and beats the beats the aristocracy again. And that's what's fascinating is basically is that this rebellion and Dorn will become this Dornish ulcer that Evan was just amazed and perplexed by of just like that this and it is fascinating to think about of just like this continually obsession with Dorn of just that the Dornish it's just like why it's the first time they really encounter it, so Darren can be forgiven, honestly, a little bit. Not too much, because Aegon had already tried for years and failed with dragons. Is that, like, the Dornish just aren't into the rest of, like, this Westerosi coalition. Well, the interesting, like, the interesting thing is, is that... Hey, yeah. Like the lords of, are like the lords can be reasoned with and like yeah all right fine fine no, I think but, it's less they reasoned they got they got beat I mean well yeah that yeah, too you, you know you you sign you sign the surrender doc when you're on your knees but this, <laughs> you really can't get that out to the small folk themselves but one of the reasons why I think people don't really understand why this Dornish obsession kind of keeps coming back is not just the completion of Aegon's dream and stuff like that. But that Daron won twice, so it was achievable. That's the thing that people really don't understand about this, is that they see, no, wait, Daron the first did it. We have his book that tells us how he did it. We, yeah, you know, but that, everyone but studies the history of his conquest. They know how he did it. The problem is, is just because you know how something works doesn't mean you can do it. Yeah, part, part of it is one, like, well, that's why Daron was really exceptional, it's also that you that as um as Duran Martel like rightly points out like hey you know no no people people Daron exaggerated yeah he exaggerated and I'm gonna take a little bit of disagree with you just from from my recollection it's that the second campaign is much more inconclusive it's much more of of what and I know what Martin is basically going for. It's it's more of of counterinsurgency. It's more guerrilla warfare. It's more that like yes, Darren can beat an army, but when he's basically facing insurgency, when he's facing this disorganized militia forces that just can strike whenever they feel like it, he doesn't lose the battles, but he isn't winning the war. As he comes well, to that peace summit, it just yeah, I disagree because this, he, he forced them to the peace of a, summit. Of a, he does force a peace summit, but that's still just the, the that's the nobles saying okay, all right, all right, all right. But then they they go yeah. and they they murder him at the peace summit. That's like that's the last act of a desperate man. Like because true enough, true he, enough. You know, murdering at a peace summit. This is this is bad. Like this is really bad news when when this happens because this is the means by which you know the white flag is by means that that battle is ended so that people can stop killing each other. So if you misuse peace summits or white flags or something like that, 
you're actually undermining the entire the entire fabric of society. Um, <laughs> no, it really is. I mean, you, you oh, can no, no, see no, this. No, 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 yep. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. It's just it, like it with to, um, sacred hospitality. It's it's the exact same idea that if you if you misuse these things, you are not just you know I mean you're not just standing yourself with whatever deed you do, but you're actually really hurting the 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 future of this. I mean now people yeah, that have a white flag. It's the it's the, the end of we're going to cover it next episode. But to preview that, it's the end of the third Blackfire Rebellion. It's, oh yeah. It's the Red Wedding. It's it's you can't do this. No, no. Yeah. Like it, if you break the rules that much, then like, what are we dealing with? It's to quote again, wrote my good friends, the Romans, um, wonderful book to read uh, the storm before the storm. At the very end of the book, Pompey Magnus holds holds these trials for people that that are enemies of Sulla. And just one of the p- people pipes up and just says like, uh, Pompey, you have no authority to do this. What are you doing? And he just flat out says to the person who dared to say that, stop speaking of laws to men with swords. Yeah, no, it, it it's very true. And yeah, the, so the, the storm before the storm is from the, the guy that did the, the History of Rome podcast. His name is Mike Duncan. Uh, for, for those of you who may not have read it or did not get into the podcast, Steen is a very, very excellent book. It's an excellent podcast too. But um, it's, 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 it's so interesting also because... Where you see where Daron failed is that he failed to incorporate Dorn and win over the Dornish people. Counterinsurgency not is very different from normal warfare, and I, I can tell you this as I've studied both warfare and counterinsurgency. Um, I mean, I was active duty during an insurgency war. Um, is that part Thank of the you goal? For your service. Well, and it's not not a problem. I mean, you know, it's 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 it is what it is. But part of the the goal with counterinsurgency is winning over the population. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the population is going to start out neither for you or against you, maybe slightly against you if you're foreign if you're a foreign occupier, which uh, which the Targaryens would definitely be seen as. But if the if the Targaryens were able to to really bring things to Dorn, whether that be canal projects, other water things, water certainly a big a big issue, and yeah. protect the people who eventually sign on from reprisal from the insurgency faction, that might have actually worked. And this is something that Dayron should have done that he didn't do was marry a Dornish woman. He should have done yeah, that okay, as, so- as the completion. He should have actually said that the Roynish are you know, they should have celebrated some the elements of the Roynish culture. And certainly one thing you should have definitely made sure to say is that uh, in Dorn, the rights of absolute primogeniture and other Dornish uh, laws. I mean, I know we know absolute primogeniture. There may be other ones that are around that we just don't know the specifics of. He should have made that proclamation first thing when, when he won yeah. the first time. But he should have done this. He should have actually made sure to. Uh, instead of making the the Tyrells the the regional enemies of the Dornish, I mean they, they've got this long yeah. historic rivalry. He made them the Older viceroys the of Dorn. Cumber. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he made them the viceroys of Dorn. And that's yeah. I mean that's something that's really going to stick into the craw, especially of the the Dornish people, because they're going to say, who are these, you know, Andals? What are they doing around here? They have no idea, you know, how we do well, things. It, it's it, 
it's even worse because like they know who the Tyrells are and they've got right. like they, they've got just as long a list as the Tyrells do for reasons to hate each other. Yeah. So it's just like it's like, hell no. Oh, no, no, no. Not a Tyrell. Although, understandably, uh, Darren has just gone through a war and so he knows it's a mistake, but it's he's got to reward someone. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of the wages of feudalism, too, is that, you know, when you when you win, you have to give out the prizes and yeah. the the Tyrells are going to be ones the, the Tyrells in the region be the ones, uh, you know, footing most of the foot soldiers yep. in this whole thing. But I mean, yep. it's we can so we can see the the idea, the vision, the mission statement of Daron the first. The problem is, is that it he didn't stick the landing. No, really is is the big thing. And and that gets us into and this is the big question that I do wonder aloud and I I kind of want to ask George R. R. Martin, although of all the things, if I ever was in the room with George R. R. Martin, this would be low on the totem pole. But but like and this is probably something Fire and Blood Volume 2 will eventually answer. But just like it's like, why didn't Darren marry? And just like it's it's a great question. I mean, yes, he was young, but it's like you're fighting in a war. No question at all about succession. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, obviously Baylor's around and okay. Getting into a bit of Baylor. So I've said this before in this podcast, I'll say it again. My own little fan theory is that he forced Baylor to marry Dana because I think in his mind in, he secretly thought, okay, Baylor is going to be King. Baylor's the one. Dana is the real one in charge. Like Dana is like me. She's a warrior. She's, She's the one that's really in charge, that she'll just totally dominate this total lackluster beta male Baylor and be the one that's really ruling Westeros. Hmm. That's my own pet theory. Hmm. For that. Uh, I, I think more along the lines of uh, Dana. Dana would actually get him moving. She's. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not. I mean, we'd we'd have to just wait for that. I I don't like to speculate about stuff uh, stuff like that. But uh, one thing we can talk about is Baylor's vision for what okay, Westeros yeah. is, and Baylor's vision is all about the faith of the seven. Yes. And the faith of the seven is this religious institution that permeates most of South, southern Westeros. Uh, including including Dorne, which is interesting. Um, they have the same religion. They didn't bring over the Roynish religion, although my theory for that is that uh, Mother Roin is ki- it's kind of hard to mer- worship Mother Roin when she's on the other side of the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's also why the Valyrians don't worship the gods of Valyria. Yeah, but it, it's 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 uh, so we see we, we see this this idea, this vision of that. Um, is that he's going to use the faith to unite uh, Westeros. So he's going to be the, the true champion of the faith. I mean, Jaharis's uh, negotiations made the Targaryen monarchy the defender of the faith, but really Baylor was going to be this true champion of the faith, embodying the virtues of the faith in a way that no other Targaryen ever would, uh, w- did before or would since. Yeah. Uh, and so the problem, of course, with that is it's not the only religion in Westeros. Yes, uh, which is like what, what eventually comes up. There's a lot of flaws in Baylor's Baylor's reign that we can now get into. But first, so, let's talk about one thing that is that is a good idea, is that he sees in 
Daron's reign, first off, a lot of bloodshed, but that the small folk were the ones who carried the Dornish insurgency. Religion is a way to really connect with the small folk on a personal level. So that's one thing that we should acknowledge. Now, we can, we're going to tear them to pieces just now, but let's, let's acknowledge that if you saw that the small folk were able to carry the Dornish insurgency, finding a way to connect with the small folk in a way that could get them to really obey you is yeah. not a bad idea. It also is, for all that I will fault him for, and rightfully so, he is something of a, of an amazing type of charismatic figure, of the religious charismatic figure, in that he, basically right after their king has been murdered, their king has been assassinated, he somehow was able to get the, the whole realm okay with making peace with the enemy that just killed their king. I'm that not is, so sure if they if they were if they were okay with it. I just uh, think they they were forced to swallow it. Well, the the thing is, like only the lords and like the the rightful-minded history historians and probably a lot of women like really hate Baylor. Baylor is remembered as Baylor the Beloved. Oh yes, Baylor is 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 right there with Aegon the Conqueror of one of the only kings that is like openly celebrated in the Baratheon era uh, uh, of like joyfully celebrated in the Baratheon era. Yeah. Because uh, of the, that, of the big religious. Yeah. Because they all share that religion. The, the issue that I have is that it's that uh, this lingering thing. I mean, you, you hear with Eris Oakhart where he says, Hey, you know, my, my ancestor was killed at this peace conference here. That's not cool. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the big thing is that because it was this travesty against really the moral fabric of Westeros, just you could force them to swallow it because you're the king. And if you disobey, you get your head cut off. Uh, but it, it doesn't it's not soothed. And I mean, you have a lot of people essentially when Daron sounded the call to war, all of the people came and obeyed their king for the, the next king to say, hey, you were wrong. To have, to have followed him. You know, we're going to make peace and we're going to do all of this. It was wrong to do this. That's the king telling you that the sacrifices you made were wrong. And yeah. that's also going to stick in the craw of... Uh, now, certainly we can see that, uh, you know, I'm not saying that peace is a bad thing. Peace is a great thing if it lasts. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that's the big problem is that there was no healing done the way there was after the Dance of the Dragons. There was no, you know, there was this no... This is again why I defend his father of, like, that, and again, like, his father has the the right idea for how to handle this, that both of his sons, or at least Baylor, doesn't. And yeah. Baylor, in, in, in aligning himself to this, to the faith in, in such a, a blatant way, we can also talk about... A little bit, although not maybe too much, depending on just how much you feel about it. But it's like it's also part of the reason everyone rightfully is skeptical about about Baylor is one one of the fan favorites, Tyrion and Oberyn tear into him as they should. It is like is personal as politics, and like his personality is like really like goes from being for pretty much icky of like ooh I have problems with sex and I'm gonna just 
ignore them and imprison my my sisters. That's my solution to the problem. Yeah, not not great in a uh, in a system of government where the dynasty matters. Yeah, <laughs> and it also doesn't work, or or yeah. or or may have arguably caused the greatest civil war of all, the the third greatest civil war of Westerosi history. So yeah. thanks for that, Baylor. Yeah. Um. Is that yeah? Oh. I love yeah. that line. I love that line. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I love, love, love that line <laughs> from <laughs> from the world of ice and fire. Is like, ooh, eventually people would wish that Dana had been a little less defined for all the trouble that baby would one day bring to the realm. It is a good line. Martin yeah. sometimes sometimes has a knack for just throwing one line out there. You can see yeah. with Baylor, he's really also got kind of a martyr complex. Because oh, yeah. when, whenever whenever something happens, his go-to response is to do something painful to himself, to to throw himself into something. When Aemon the Dragon Knight is is on the uh, you know is in the cave suspended over the pit of vipers, it's like oh no it's okay I'm gonna walk I'm gonna walk in there and rescue you. Yeah. And actually, it turns out Aemon the Dragon Knight had to be the one to pull him out. Yeah. That that would have been a disaster if he ended up dying for a completely other reason i mean baylor surviving was a disaster but uh, i mean it would have re- it would it would have yeah. reignited the war it would have reignited the war uh nah, but, but uh, then viserys would have been in charge and yeah so interestingly in my, my theory with baylor is that while he was always a little out there yeah uh it was that episode that actually oh, yeah, well, really really got him because um well first off he was unconscious for a long period of time and as any any medical professional can tell you when you're unconscious for that amount of time especially when you're dealing with uh, some i think they said that the the, the they were cobras who have a neurotoxin yeah. um you know there's brain damage that can happen and mm-hmm. you know baylor may have might have had some brain damage going back to magor when he was unconscious and he might have suffered brain damage uh but also the fact that he survived that kind of really emboldened him and said that I am the chosen one and now I can yes. do no wrong, which is when he can do things I like mean, making... after he had already gone to Dorne barefoot with hundreds of the Dornish hostages, which were a decent bargaining chip. Yeah, I mean, the the going on barefoot is... I mean, that's right out of history. That's uh, Kaiser yeah, that's, that's Hen- Henrik, Henrik IV. Well, that, that, but I'm talking about the, the, the going barefoot to do penance is Kaiser Heinrich IV. Yeah. Uh, that the penance that he had to do, but yeah, no, the definitely. I mean, there's a lot of Jesus motifs in Baylor. I mean, it's even in the Amok portrait. Yeah. Oh, 100. Uh, percent Yes. And it's it's interesting. Uh, I do maintain like, that. I, I do agree with like with that hint that the world of Vice and Fire gives us is like, oh yeah, those snake bites that that probably did a number on him. But yeah, I can also see yes that that definitely emboldened him. I'm just yeah. saying like, I am the the chosen one. I am the anointed one. Yeah. Clear, clearly, if the seven didn't have a plan for me, I would have died. Yeah. Yeah. So you could. That's when he does these things like, uh, you know, making the the eight year old boy high septon, and then the illiterate stonemason. First the illiterate stonemason, and then the eight year old boy. Both of them are just like, oh gosh. Yeah, and it's funny because it's like you know the the faith is where a lot of supernumerary sons go to get political power. Yeah. And the, the most devout are going to be very, very angry about that. But then like, but look, I built you this big cathedral. And they're like, I guess you did build us this giant cathedral, your grace. 
Well, well, I think at the time they were much more open to it because this is the apex. Of, oh, sure. Of, of their power since since the faith militant has been dissolved, and they will not get this type of power until the sparrows come into play. Yeah, but I can I can definitely see the most devout specifically being. Oh like, yeah, the, yes, oh. of course. The real like devout are like this is blasphemy. Like this guy is a total. Yeah, but then you can see kind of the 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 utility of having something that. Uh, appeals to the small folk is if the most devout start making a big stink about it well their constituents are going to be a little less happy about <laughs> exactly what happens and as the uh the lamprey lord the the septon the septon in uh clash of kings finds out when you have a bunch of starving angry peasantry who may not necessarily respect your uh authority as head of state you can get torn apart just as easily as anybody else. Absolutely, yes, right. And part of it is also, well, the other thing with with, with Baylor, as we rightfully tear him apart, is he does take take the right messages from the faith, but in implementing the right messages from the faith, it's also why it's just like, but you're not a king. And you're, and this is what will get you points and make you beloved by the people. But you don't know how to manage finances yeah. of that. Yeah. That you still, I will you still have a realm to, to run. Every, I will, I, I will give bread to all the people. Yeah. And just Viserys, I, I'm sure, just like, well, that's wonderful, nephew. But you've just spent yeah. all of our treasury for the whole year. Yeah. So I mean, how will the government work? Yeah, especially since since so much of Westeros is on is an agricultural society. Really, the harvest time is when the taxes come in, and certainly, I mean, I'm, my guess is is that there were very few winters, or in Baylor's reign, because otherwise it would have been a real, a real problem. Yeah. But uh, you, I mean, certainly, my guess is is that uh, Viserys, since he he definitely learned some some ideas of finance from his uh, Regare uh, parent, well, adoptive ward. I don't even know what you'd call them because. You know, they didn't really adopt him, and they took him captive after he was. <laughs> I mean, oh, they made yeah. him a ward after. I mean, that, there's there needs to be a new word for that for the kind well, of just, relationship he had with the Regares. Well, it's but, kind of like Ned and Ned and uh, Theon of like, yeah, that's true. yeah, kind of like awkward situation. So probably the fact that uh, Viserys knew some SOC banking techniques from the Regares yeah. definitely definitely kept the kingdom solvent through that yes. entire thing. Certainly kings well, were chronic bankrupts in the Middle Ages. I mean, I know Stephen Atwell always harps on that point about how kings frequently ran out of money. And my one of my favorite factoids about that is sometimes people, uh, when they were waging war against the, when certain kings were waging war against the Italian city-states, they were still taking loans from them, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the madness and... It's just like, it's how it is. But yeah, no, uh, really props to Viserys here for keeping the uh, the kingdom running. And that's why Viserys like that's the genius of Viserys is that is that he's able to tame the excess of, of Baylor of just. Yeah, he, he's the only reason that Baylor's reign didn't collapse. Yeah. Within like and, minutes. 
Yeah, and you can certainly expect that he he was able to keep Dayron's realm largely solvent because a he was able to they were able to get some conquer some conquests which means they could replenish their war chests and Aegon probably left a sizable amount in the treasury and that you only had to do that for two years or so so you know you can ride through that for Baylor to keep or uh, for sorry for Viserys and there were some Baylor that he could also oh yeah 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 that's a yeah, conquest and 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 plunder but for for Viserys to keep uh, Baylor's reign solvent after all of the, I mean, the 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 grain dole that was uh, being uh, handed out in King's Landing, and then banning prostitution, which could be a, a valuable form of taxation for the the royal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I would say, I mean, uh, you know, you you there's lots of things that you could do. I mean, a vice tax is essentially one yes. of the is a yeah. can be a great money maker. I mean, it certainly was in the American Revolution or in the American Revolutionary times. That was most of uh, most of the money they got came from alcohol taxes. <laughs> um, and yeah, that that's part of the, and that's why Baylor is like it's one of those things where Baylor is much more useful as a martyr and as an image than as a actual ruler. Yeah. Yeah, because like actual ruling. If we even ignore, which Girls Gone Canon rightfully takes him to task in their Patreon special episode of on the Maiden Vault, is that if you even remotely consider just like the monstrosity that is the Maiden Vault, already he is just as terrible as Ares the Second in many ways. Of just like he is a horrible, horrible person. And from but, a practical perspective, feudalism is built on dynastic alliances, and those are marriage yeah. pawns. Even from a purely practical perspective, you should be doing that. Yes. I mean, Viserys, and that's what Viserys said. Viserys is like, no, this is dumb. Why are you doing this? And poor Elena, like, tries to, like, fight it. It was like, I've shaven my head. Now I'm ugly. Can I go out? No! You're so still tempting! I say she didn't she didn't shave her head though. She cut the the one gold lock that she had cuz she had silver hair with one big strip like strip of gold and she cut the gold lock and said she was hideous. Yeah. Which I mean from a symbolic I mean let's let's give her credit because Elena was one of if not the smartest uh yes. members of House House Targaryen. Definitely. So she she understands the value of of a symbolic statement and a defiant gesture like that. So, you know, I mean, yeah, you can definitely see that Baylor is just unmoved. But uh, if if I could get a metaphor for Baylor, Baylor is a man who runs through a minefield, and when <laughs> and and when nothing yeah. happens, and everyone says, "How did that happen? It must be a miracle." And that's what I think of Baylor's reign: is that it's the real miracle of Baylor's reign is not the boy that can he- apparently hear the voice of the gods through the septum, the sparrows, but through the fact that it did not catastrophically crash and burn. And I, all, I attribute all of that to Viserys, 100%, everything to Viserys of just like that he managed. And we'll get into it in a little bit. I just want to touch on something that you alluded to earlier about daddy issues with, with. Oh Baylor. yes. So, we can see that Aegon was probably not a very warm father. Yeah. Just, I mean, so you can see not where... Not that Viserys was better, but yeah. I'm not, yeah, not saying that he, he was, but you can definitely see how 
Dayron and Baylor both would look to try and find an authority figure that would welcome them. Now, Dayron went in the complete opposite direction and said, well, I'm not going to get the recognition from my father, so I am going to be the authority figure. I'm going to be a general, and my troops will recognize me, and that is how I will get my affection. Whereas Baylor translates from the father lowercase to the father uppercase. Yes. And that's where he's looking to get his recognition. So you can kind of see these influences just kind of working on the psyches. And that's a little speculative for my taste, but if we didn't speculate about the various neuroses of an inbred family, yes. <laughs> what we wouldn't be doing, uh, we wouldn't be doing the fans any justice. No, no, no. And honestly, uh, the, the more we think about it, they are mirrors because both of these brothers are mirrors because they're both really conspicuously tr seeking glory and trying to like set this mark to contrast their father of like really making an impression and being these wildly erratic charismatic figures that can inspire thousands but leave behind a humongous mess for people to pick up the pieces from. It is very true. And and so yeah. And yeah. okay. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Like my own like two cents on on that little rumor that is wonderfully put in. Oh yeah, totally Baylor was about to plan a crusade. Yes. Yeah. Baylor again. Was totally go I mean, I can believe he is stupid enough to starve himself. I I do believe he is stupid enough to starve himself. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's a, no. Oh yeah, you totally were like Oh, I must make I must make the all of the realm worship the seven. And yes, that means I must yeah. go to war with the north and the iron islands. Very and, well. And that's the dark side with using a sort of cul a cultural thing as your touchstone to define your monarchy is what happens to those who fall outside. Yeah. That that touchstone and that's I mean like yeah. the iron islands is another issue, but like the north is kind of a big chunk of that to really like eh, Baylor are, are you sure about this and not to mention that the the beloved son of uh Cregan died in in uh Daron's war so he died being loyal so that yeah. that that's bad news already yeah uh, but but then we have Viserys and so what I think of I think Viserys did have a vision uh and his vision was essentially a bureaucratic kingdom, an administrative masterpiece that now, unchecked by all of these constant drains on the treasury, he was going to actually look to build certain, you know, the way Jaharis did when he had these great works. I don't think they would have been at the same scope just because the kingdom was not at that point. But I think he would have tried to do things to really build the kingdom into an engine that could, you know, stay in the black and really just kind of raise general prosperity, certainly, you know, getting better ties to Essos through uh, merchant deals and things like that. You know, selling selling timber to Bravos is a great would be a great thing for Bravos because they need they need uh, wood for ships and the North's got a ton of it. Yep. Uh, so that you can actually see this is what Viserys's vision was. And you can, you know, so it's in a way, it's his own 
you know, how am I going to define the strength of the Targaryen monarchy? And I'm going to define it the way that I've kept this Targaryen monarchy, you know, through the, you know, benign absenteeism of Aegon, the martial conquests of Daeron, and, you know, Baylor's various religious follies, is I'm going to do it through the way I've always done it. And now that I'm the senior man at the helm, I can really do it. Yes. And I mean, as everyone in in World of Ice and Fire brings up is he, he definitely had the potential and like he he has that Jaharasian kind of vision yeah. of really like forming this stable stable bureaucracy, a, a reform of the laws. He basically in many ways is is a precursor to his descendant. I'm I'm not sure exactly what it is off the top of my head, but his descendant, Aegon V, basically is trying to do what Viserys is doing at that moment. I don't think he would have been quite so pro small folk as Aegon, because that's gonna cause yes. you know, his his yeah. problems. And, but, and we'll get into that when we get to him. But, but he's uh, trying to but basically Viserys is trying to figure out, okay, we don't have the dragons anymore. I'm gonna like fill that in with trade and mm-hmm. with reforms to law. And that's yeah. how we're going to solve the problem. He's essentially then defining, he, yeah, yeah, he's got his mission statement of, I'm going to be Jaharis without the dragons. Because remember, you know, he's the conciliator. Yes. He's, he, sure, yeah, the and, dragons helped. I mean, it was great to have, what, you know, seven or eight dragons flying above that tournament ground. That was certainly yes. a great visual, visual, uh, you know, visually impressive moment. But for what the we monarchy. said in the first episode is that the dragons were always there to help and yeah. which we're going to eventually come to when we cover egg is, is unfortunately like they're, they're the great saber rattle. Of yeah. that. They're, 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 they're the big stick that you need to have to make people say, yeah. okay. Yeah. They're the nuclear option. They're, they're yeah. the, the between 1945 and 1948, when only the U S had the nuclear bomb, uh, that, that was the foreign policy, big stick that they used in those, in those short years. You got to have sometimes and yeah. And so, but then he dies and you believe he was murdered? Oh, absolutely. Okay. The, 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 this is the only defense I'll ever give to Aegon the Unworthy is like, I, I just don't think I see that in him. Not because he's noble at all. Not at all. It's just that I think he's too lazy for that. No, that is fair, and he is certainly lazy. I think the problem, though, is that Aegon IV was not a young man when this happened. So when when Aegon IV took over uh, when he was in um, when he was in uh, uh, when he became king, he was not a young man. He was uh, forty seven. Yes. When, when he um, when he took over, so. He was actually, you know, at this point, this is when he started having all of the health problems that he was having. So my, my idea is, is not that he, that, I mean, Aegon feared that he might have not ever had the chance to be king if, um, if Viserys was still around. Or, and this, this is even the even, you know, scarier part, maybe Aegon feared that Viserys would have replaced him with Daeron. Gotten rid of him because he. I, I'm 100% believe that Aegon believed that Viserys murdered Baylor, 
And if he could murder his nephew, he could certainly murder his own son to pave way for his grandson, who he found to be more ideologically sympathetic. That's wonderfully speculative. I could I yeah. could see that. I could see that. The, the only thing I, I, I would bristle a bit with that is we got to remember that this Martin's in this kind of medieval world and that uh, Viserys was was an old man. He was not a spring chicken when he became king. So it's not unreasonable that he died because at his age because he was pretty old when he became king. Oh, and he was also, also a heavy, the irony heavy... of that of that all these years you're in the shadows and now you're finally getting your chance to shine and that's when you die. Let's also be fair to to that. Uh, he was lived a very stressful life, and he yes. almost certainly micromanaged a lot of things. And so I would definitely say the 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 stress of it certainly did play a factor in his health. But again, you know, we hear in the world book that he was healthy, and just I mean, yes. the last old guy that we know that was healthy and suddenly died, you know, the 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 John Aaron parallels that we see. He yes. was actually yes, murdered. Yes. True, so, true enough. True enough. But again, it's all speculative, and we'll probably—I'm sure that Martin will put a bunch of stuff, both real stuff and red herrings, in Fire and Blood Volume Two about that. Absolutely, 100%. He's not going to make it clear, but he's going to leave plenty of room for speculation. So, I mean, he, he knows. I love that that he and Ilio and Linda did that in the World Book of just that there's just enough to where it's like, and also I can believe also one of the defensives like of that. I think that rumor only comes up really because of the fact that that his son rules so terribly that they have to then like look back and say, wait a minute, did he die normally or was there so, some foul play involved? And yeah. it's also the sadness of the, of like only after Viserys is gone do they realize how awesome he was. Yeah. Because I mean, before that, yeah. it's like, we lost Baylor. Oh, Baylor was wonderful. And now we got this boring, mean old man as king. Uh, I, I always love when I see the Amok picture of Viserys II, because I say, uh, he looks like his middle name is Buzzkill. Yeah. He just, he just looks angry all the time. And it's just, yeah, you can definitely see how Viserys definitely would not have inspired anything, but it's like, and, oh man, and, and, really Viserys is going to be our king. And it's like, oh, oh, is that what you want? Do you? Okay, then here comes Aegon the fourth. Yeah. Everyone's like, ooh. Yeah. Well, well uh, hey, but, and Jim, remember though, and yet Viserys was the more outgoing and genial one of the two. <laughs> well, remember he was outgoing and, and genial until his wife left him. Yeah, that's true too. So, yeah, so yeah, and, that, and, and, and his wife left him early. Yes, I, I can only imagine. Yeah, no, Viserys is sound. Is, it looks like the guy whose uh, marriage fell apart, so he threw himself into his work. Yeah. Like that—that's what uh, Viserys seems like to me. Because we actually also have the daddy issues of Aegon the Fourth, where certainly yes. Viserys was also going to be very, very spare in his criticism or spare in his his words of praise. And we can also probably see an inferiority complex starting in Aegon the Fourth from the very early age, because we have to remember of his generation, Aegon the Fourth was the oldest. Yeah. So. Oh, uh, I forgot about that. But yep, yeah. Yep. No. He, yes, he, he is, was the yes. oldest. Yes, he is. And, yeah. and so he probably felt that he was going to have to be the leader of his, you know, siblings and cousins. But then you go and you look, Daron the First, amazing general. 
Aemon, amazing warrior. Baylor, loved by the commons. What's they got? What's they got got going for him? And then you also got the. And then you also got Elena, who is this secret, brilliant, mm. uh, 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 economic wizard. And you've also got Dana, who pretty yeah. much leaves a big stamp on history. So, oh, yeah. Well, so she, yeah. She, she just has these tempests. She's essentially a storybook, but alive and doing the things of in her storybook. You know, yep. her, her, her crazy tale of whirlwind romance and daring escapes and stuff like that. That's what she is. But certainly, especially in a patriarchal society like Westeros, you could see Aegon feeling himself inferior compared to his other, his male siblings and cousins. Yeah, yeah and so definitely. He, so you can see him try to essentially translate that out to, if I get the adoration of, if I have all of these romantic conquests, I will be shown as a man. Yeah. And and you can kind of see that that stamp on Aegon. And, but from a, from a you know, that's kind that's a little bit, tangential to you can kind of see where he's his seeking of affection and adoration really ties into his mission statement of the monarchy where he's so corrupt he is yes. so just unbelievably uh arbitrary, arbitrary with everything he does and it's all about essentially the same thing that we hear with Ares the second and his lickspittle lords as they're called is yes. that he's, he's chasing this affection but now we also have to remember that in his youth, he was actually incredibly handsome, ambitious. He was a war hero. Because remember, he was the one who fought in da- he fought in Daron's War of Dan- Dornish Conquest. And he was the one who brought the prisoners back to the uh, the Red Keep. So you can imagine and yes, probably— one of them was his mistress. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, Aegon's going to Aegon. But you can imagine that moment was probably one of the first times he really felt genuine affection. Because if it's anything like regular history, that wouldn't have just been a, hey, we're going to move the prisoners to the Red Keep. There would have been a parade. There would have been oh, a yeah. triumph. That, yeah, that's a triumph. Yeah. Uh, and we're he would have seen path. all of the, the people, all of the, the small folk of King's Landing turning out cheering and him at the head of the procession uh because obviously daron was still in still in dorn you know completing the uh you know completing the uh the administrative turnover to the the tyrells so he would have loved uh, i do want to also chime in that when viserys suggested executing the the dornish rebels um the dornish hostages as payment for the execution of, of or the murder of, of Darren the First, Aegon happily gave away his Dornish mistress oh, to yeah. his father. So that yeah. should give you a clue on what type of man and what type of loyalty you can expect. Well, I mean, a- Aegon only ever really cared for number one. That that's the thing. Is he he yes. never cared about anything besides what's going to happen to me now. And I mean, he and even when he was just being kind of crappy, he ended up getting a good, you know, he got a, essentially a, a comfortable diplomatic post in Bravos when when Viserys was handling things. Because, I mean, I, I think it was. Uh, well, no, that's also like that's one of the rare moments where you can actually admire Baylor is that. Oh, yeah. That right after poor um, Elena. Right. No, 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 no. Um, Dana. Uh, no, not Dana. Um, no, uh, shoot, one of one of his seven loves. Okay, I, I, all right, I got I got I got the world book out. Uh, okay, here we go. Okay, Neris. Oh, Neris. Yeah, you're right. Right with the uh, the troubled pregnancy and. Yeah, yeah. She had a, a um, 
one after first off it's during i think during Aegon the the third's reign but first she gives birth to to daron and that's like oh no yeah. I, I, and like, that nearly kills teller, her yeah the maesters tell her like never again never again and he says like oh hell no yeah like please can we just live as brother and sister that's what we're doing that's the targaryen way Ugh, yeah but and yeah I, I got the old book and i just want to pull out the quote the great quote from maester kaith about aegon the unworthy Aenys was weak and Magor was cruel and Aegon II was grasping, but no king before or after would practice so much willful misrule. And that's the key term about him is it's like, yeah, Magor believed what he was doing. Yeah. Like Magor was a tyrant, but he believed that what he was doing was right. Aegon, the, the usurper was a usurper. He was grasping, but he believed what he was doing was right. Also, like it's it's in many ways worse when it's just yeah. like it's Aegon the Unworthy, where it's just like flat out like, you know, this is the wrong choice. It's like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. And he doesn't even have the excuse of brain damage like Magor and Baylor may have had. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, yeah, he's yeah. just a greedy. I mean, it's obvious where, where, who he's inspired by. He's Henry the eighth. He is just like, he is a narcissist. He is an, utter utter sociopath i mean honestly he's even he's not even henry the eighth henry the eighth would at least had some decor and things like that about <laughs> him like he is yeah. he is like all of the negative parts of henry the eighth turned up to 11 but i mean oh yeah well yeah know, that's what martin yeah for. history yeah. turned up to 11 is is martin shtick but we can you can see how this this vision is unsustainable as it's 100 short-sighted and it's utterly yeah. petty and basically the way i liken it to is is what you were saying it, it's lickspittle lords it's 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 it beginning a corruption system of oh, just yeah. having the lords compete with one another for who gets to be the top influencer yeah. who gets to be the number two man yeah. and, it's a medieval and, and becomes most most blatant and we can point at, at it and this is where personal is does become politics is in finding, okay, the Blackwoods and the Bra Bracken suddenly become basically these competing lords, and this is the apex of their power, leading up to the Blackfire era, where it is the true apex of their power. Of just that, suddenly it's just like, which woman will Aegon like? Ooh, ooh, he likes Melissa Blackwood. Ooh, no, or no? Oh, I got, I got yes. a little book out. Let me get the exact it's, names right. But yeah, uh, he, it's Barbara Bracken, likes, then Melissa, then Bethany Bracken. Okay, thank you. And just yeah. like that, I'm just like competing and just like that's so no, the... sh shameful and like horrifying. And yeah, and as you said, so short-sighted because yeah. because one, he leaves behind bastards that he also recognizes. And the one thing like you can moderately admire is like, well, at least he didn't deny paternity. Well, yeah, but, but he did. He did. Nice. He did. He did murder. Um, he did murder yeah. uh, Bittersteel's uh, grandfather and mother. So that, uh, that not, kinda, not not his mother. No, no. Um, I, th I thought Barbara was included with Bethany and Lord Bracken. Uh, it, oh, it, it might. But I mean, certainly. I don't know if that. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but but uh, certainly no. He, there's two things that I want to talk about with Aegon that just 
perfectly encapsulate just the the willful misrule. The first is the legendary dragon egg story. Yes. Where, well, that's like the. It's just like it's so. Yeah. Because like, what the. Like, dragon eggs, I mean, there are no dragons, and these dragon eggs are essentially expensive doodads at this point. To but be, they're still, yeah, that's one thing, like, they're to still be fair, the like, symbol. Yeah, but still, you know, yeah. be- before then, if you were not a high enough Targaryen baby, you didn't even get an egg. Yeah. And now, and now Ambrose gets it for one night uh, with his three daughters, which is just, I mean, that is just and a- Ambrose gross. also is like, that is like so scummy it's just oh like, yeah it's, it's gross it's and then but the other one that i like is the the discussion with the teats Ugh. is that so there for those who don't know that the teats are these these valuable hills that are contested territory between the the blackwoods and the brackens and the um i love jamie's just like eye rolling of like predicting like let me guess yeah is that <laughs> melissa uh, Missy Blackwood apparently was very flat-chested, and yeah. so some, uh, some, you know, one of them made made uh, the bra- a bracken made fun of her for, it and says, "Oh, well, then, then I'll give her some of my own," and he just give takes the teats and grants them to the Blackwoods, just on a pure whim and a dirty joke yeah. out of sheer spite. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's kind of crappy to go and make fun of a woman for her figure. I mean, it's yeah. crappy to make fun of anybody for how they look. It's just that's how they look, but. I mean, that's just—he's just gonna do it for a dirty joke and a laugh. That—that's yeah. the thing. It's—it's it's governance for a lark, for a lark, essentially, is how Aegon summed up his thing. However, there is the but basic, there's... there there is a foundation for foundational element is this idea of a coalition of nobles behind him. Now, Aegon turned his into a kleptocracy, basically a medieval yeah. kleptocracy, not the modern conception that we think of when we think of like Russia or whatever. Uh, but it also is though uh, adding on to that and not necessarily disagreeing it's also becoming the this thing where we're now the uh, of the uh, the prestige of the of the throne iron throne is now the largesse that the king can give you yes it's, it's the teats it's that like it's that i will give you major prestige if you give me a good good woman to screw around with if you yep. give me a good enough bribe if you flatter me enough yeah I you laugh at my jokes or whatever yeah if, if i give one of your children a bastard that bastard will be very well decorated and very yep. well powerful and so your family by consequence will be powerful if you delight me and humor me and so that's also again why it's incredibly short-sighted because yep. you leave behind so much like uh, expended largesse yeah on uh in the realm that's already no, no. going to be a problem yeah now and, kings have to be ring givers they have to be open-handed that's part of yes. feudalism but he's taking it to you know the nth degree here as if that's the big problem is that if there's there's no pattern there's no rhyme or reason and it's you know he can completely change his his mind the next day and there's he does even, yeah and there's no so there's not even benefit to being you know the king's favorite guy because you know three days from now you might sneeze out of turn he decides to take all those prizes and give them to somebody else that says you know how dare you sneeze in the king's presence well the only person that that earned his enmity but but nothing happened so Aegon played a clever long game was his own son his only legitimate son like dared to criticize him and 
and Aegon, for whatever reason, like decided not to, or also knew he couldn't really yeah, outright disown him. I think that's he, also he one of the reasons why he supposedly basically tormented Neris is that he wanted a legitimate son so he could dispossess yeah. the son he didn't like. Look for Ares II to hear that story again. Yeah, but, but he, I think the, the one of the neat things about Crown Prince Daron, and I and I am resp- explicitly referring to him as Crown Prince Daron because he's not Daron the Second yet, is you can actually see him organizing the nobles into a coalition to support him. Yes. I mean, certainly there are you know certain things. The the Dornish War is a very very big thing that I mean he gets. I mean Aegon gets a lot of support for renewing the Dornish conflict and breaking the Baylor Treaty. Uh, and, you know, he disastrously fails with that because... Spectacularly And failed. then the, the... But the best part is then he loses interest. He loses interest immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, I lost the fleet. Well, you know, you could get another one. I mean, cer- certainly yeah. the, the... You know, burning down the Kingswood, okay, I could see maybe focusing your attention on somewhere else, but storms happen. There are other fleets... You know, you could buy a fleet. You could, you could I mean, hire it's a fleet. Hilariously, the gods are clearly against him, and it's just wonderful. And like the the stupid wooden dragons that spit wildfire, just all this. Yeah. Wow. Which it strikes me as like kind of trying to build a land siphon, a land based siphon of Greek fire. But uh, yeah, I mean, wild wildfire is its own unique and and fun toy. But it's you can see. Crown Prince Daron just slowly building and organizing a faction. And and this is interesting. Well, because he has this, to also because his father is yeah. either intentionally or not building a faction. One, like he's building these factions within themselves of like Bracken and Blackwood yeah. are becoming these giant factions. But he's also building this faction for his bastard son, like one particular bastard son yeah. obviously is getting more and more elevated. Yeah. And this is a bit of cutting ahead to the to the next episode, but in particular when when there's when now all that's left for symbols is that the dragons are gone and even Aegon's crown is gone. Yep. So all that's left is Blackfire. Of, 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 le- of legendary Aegon the Conqueror yeah. is his Valyrian sword, Blackfire. Yep. It's the only portable one, because the only other one you got is the Iron Throne. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but and so it's, yeah, it's and easy. in this giant public ceremony in the Red Keep, Aegon the Fourth, unworthy he may be, he is the king of Westeros, has his bastard son on his knees and knights him and publicly recognizes him as his son one of the youngest knights in Westerosi history and bequeaths him Blackfire, the sword of the conqueror. And certainly you can see a part of it is you can see why Aegon is so, so proud of Daemon because Daron the second is very unmasculine. He's got he's very spindly. He doesn't have a very robust frame. He doesn't, he's not interested in riding or being on the Pell or jousting or any of the martial sport that is so common to the aristocracy of Westeros. But Damon is it's almost like an an old dad living through his old football days yep. through his son. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly yes. we can see this. Damon is I mean, he's the warrior 
incarnate, essentially. He is absolutely amazing at all of these martial sports. Uh, so we can see where, you know, Damon certainly has his own, would have his own following. But then you can see, as you said, with Aegon building his own faction, he's reaching out to his old war buddies from back in the day when they fought Dorne. And yeah. you see, you see Daeron, and he's always keeping counsel with these, these uh, septons and maesters, and, maesters I mean, he, and women. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and certainly he'd be doing even more of that when he actually becomes king himself. Yes. But you can see the foundations of it starting here with Aegon and his absolute contempt for his son, and you can see the the natural response, the defensive mechanism of Daeron is to well, let's build ideologically ally ideological allies with the other nobles who are really getting tired of Aegon constantly, you know, appropriating inherit appropriating inheritances. That's big. I mean, when Aegon says, you know what, I'm going to take mine from, yeah. you know, your, your dead relative, all of these dynastic and lineage minded people are like, Ooh, uh, this is, this isn't really great for me if this if he happens to notice something that he likes and i happen to kick the bucket what's going to happen to my kids if he happens to notice my daughters if he happens to notice my lands if he happens to notice my money i can imagine all of the all of the nobles that are trying to worry about that it's like every single time the royal progress is going through hey honey how would you like to take a uh a, a season in bravos how yeah. would you like to see pentos yeah no you've never seen pentos would you like to see it please yeah. please <laughs> and so i think we're kind of wrapping it up to a yeah. close with the, with the silver age is that what we've seen and what we're touching on is that Aegon by employing this spoils corruption based largesse model of kingship he has created the breeding ground for factionalism and oh yeah also breeding a line of bastards that he openly recognizes and flowers with this largesse only certifies and cements that these factions are going to be around yeah. And he, he legitimizes them at the end. For and the, so, yes, his, and the, our, our final yeah. note is that, is that, yeah. and then he does the most dangerous thing of all, which leads to a century of civil war, well, is he it, legitimizes his bastards in his will. And and it's, it's, again, it's one final lark. It's one final rule by lark, just abs- for an absolute laugh. I mean, he might as well at this point be embalmed giving the double bird, because, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, I mean, he'd be cremated or whatever, but... Uh, that the it's just one last final this is funny and i'm going to and i'm going to say haha one final time even on my way out i'm going to make things worse for the people i hate for and my I mean, son yeah yep. but, but, but then I like could, a, and yeah. the other pettiness of like but is he my son it's like yes he is yes yeah I mean, the gods clearly said so. That was what was his name? Uh, shoot, I can't remember the name of the guy that that he had to uh, to to spread the rumors that it was Nerys and Aemon. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, but I mean, there was a trial by combat, and yep. in Westerosi society, if you win the trial by combat, clearly the gods are making their will known and the truth yep. known through yep. through the actual combat itself. But if I could get one mission statement for for this Silver Age, I think I've got it. I've actually just came up with this. I didn't even say it in the in the panel that I had with um, 
uh, when I when I did this before with Aziz and History of Westeros, is that what I think the Silver Age teaches us is really monarchy is a lot like a relationship <laughs> where you can do all of these grand operatic gestures, these big things that people notice and remember. But when we see with Aegon and we see with Viserys, who were actually doing things relatively successfully and the kingdom was stable, it's actually just a lot of hard work. You got to put time into it, just like in a relationship. You know, that's how they succeed is not through these grand gestures, but through sustained and honest effort. And the people that lost sight of that, they ended up causing Westeros a lot of ruin. Mm -hmm. I say that's the uh, that's what I think of that. That's a wonderful. That's a sweet and wonderful metaphor to go off on. Um, I'm going to muddy it by saying my own little two piece on it. Um, I think that the best the thing about the Silver Age that's just fascinating is and why you were interested in talking about this on the panel is this fascinating question of what happens when when what defined this monarchy is gone what's left and as you aptly put it it's strangely in a way i'll I'll use a bit more colloquial and just say it's strangely the boring people who get it right of just like of what you have to do is you just have to do the kind of unexciting menial but effective labor that ultimately will keep the ship afloat. And when you try to do the kind of reckless brazen acts that will, yeah, they'll be remembered, but do you really want to be remembered for causing a ruckus for, for being as Benjamin Stark rightly says of like, yeah, yeah, that was a really great story. And that's a really great and impressive, but look at what actually happened. Look what it actually cost. That's not really a great legacy. That's not really something to, celebrate and so join us next week next week we're going to welcome back Stephen atwell and we're going to talk about that wonderful century of conflict the blackfire rebellions all right take care everyone Aegon the unworthy left options on the table for who could be in charge and of course that became a problem yep See you then. Bye-bye.